Let's turn together now to read the word of God in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Isaiah, in chapter number 8, and reading at verse 16. Isaiah chapter 8, at verse 16. Let us hear the word of God. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when you divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you are broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is the word of God. May pray that you bless to us that reading from it. We're going to turn back to the Scottish Psalter and sing this time from Psalm number 68 on page 301 Psalm 68 and we're singing at verse number 3. But let the righteous be glad let them before God's sight be very joyful yea let them Rejoice with all their might. And we'll sing from verse 3 to verse mark 6 to God's praise. <clears throat> but let the righteous be glad, let them be
Isaiah and to chapter 9, and we can read verse 6. Isaiah 9 and at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So on. Now, continuing to consider the promise of God as we have it with regard to the coming of salvation through uh, the one who is uh, brought before us in Genesis chapter 3 until we arrive at the birth of the Lord Jesus, we are following one of the threads of the Old Testament that we can see down through the generations of the experience of the people of God a promise that was given and as generations do go by we get further and further light on what that promise means. What is hidden at the very beginning is revealed more and more as we journey on through the experience of the people of God and we saw at the very beginning and continue to reflect upon that the way in which the very purpose of God to fill this world with the image of God and to extend the the paradise of God to cover the whole of the earth, the way in which that marvellous purpose of God was threatened because of the sin of Adam in the garden. And we saw that it was against that threat that God made that first promise that despite what Adam did, that God would still uh, bring about his own purposes and plans for the earth. Then we took a leap forward into chapter 7 of this prophecy where we saw a new threat and the new threat on this occasion was from God's king over Judah and he was a threat because he wasn't a believing king because he, he, he worshipped idols because he went to look for help from other nations instead of going to God so the very continuity of the promise was threatened because of a non-believing king. And as we come into this chapter, having noticed the intervention of God in promising that he himself would give a sign that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, 
moving on from there, we have further light on what that promise means in Isaiah chapter 9. And as we do so, we are still in the same historical context. In other words, we are still in the same place of the same threat. The threat to the promise of God because, as we read the beginning of this chapter, people are in darkness. People are in in a land of deep darkness. And there is the the sense of of a burden and the sense of, of being in bondage. There is a place to which the people have come because of their forgetfulness of God. And from that place of darkness, God brings his people. And he does it, and in doing so, as we move on to verse number 6, we see the way in which there are stepping stones which take us to the great explanation, and the only explanation, how God will do so. We see in in verse number 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his oppressor, the oppression comes to an end. We see in verse 5 that uh, warfare and conflict comes to an end. And then we come to verse 6, for to us a child is born. Here is the great explanation. And so our movement out of darkness, as it was theirs, comes through the great news that we have in verse number 6. And so from these verses today, I want to think of the birth of the Son and the mission of God. I want to think, first of all, of the entrance. The entrance of light into the darkness. The entrance of freedom for those who are in bondage. There is a great entrance. There is a great dawning. For he says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And we see from these verses, and considering what what these two phrases bring before us, they do focus in particular upon the way in which all that takes place is to us, to the people who are in darkness, to the people who are under oppression, to the people who are in danger, to us. There's that sense of this being for them. And let's not lose sight of, of these two little words when we consider the great truths around them, because to you and to me, to us also, this has taken place. And what has taken place to us, for us, A child is born and a son is given. This might suggest to us repetition. Why say a child is born? Why say a son is given? It is because that is highlighted for us in these two statements, two distinct and particular things that give us a gateway into the wonder of everything that God is promising here. Because when he says to us, a child is born, he is making reference especially to the fact that this child grows up from amongst the people. He is born into the generation of the people of God. Just as Isaac was born to Abraham, just as Solomon was born to David, just 
down through the generations of the people of God, as we see Isaiah himself in in chapter 8, speaking about, Behold me and the children that God has given to me. Here is a child that is born from the very people of God in his own generation. And that very birth of the son into the manger at Bethlehem draws our attention to the way in which all of the strands are here to, to connect this child, not only with the promise given to Abraham, but with the promise given to, in the words of God, to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Here is the promised child. And for all of the people of God in the Old Testament who waited for the dawning of this day, for one to come from amongst themselves, here is the day spoken of 730 years before it happened, as if it had already taken place. It's sure and it's certain he will come from among you. And we will spend some time this evening looking at the wider significance of that. But unless this passion comes from amongst ourselves as one of ourselves, then he is not going to help us. He's an outsider who can look from within and understand where our sin has brought us, but he cannot do anything for us. He has to come from the womb of the Virgin Mary, who is espoused to to Joseph, who is of the house of David, to whom the promises were given that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. A child is born, and we come to to think of his birth on Christmas Day, and let's not lose sight of the wonder that Jesus in the manger is one of ourselves. He was born of a woman. And alongside of that, to us, a son is given. And perhaps the overriding thing in this phrase is the word given. The child is born, but the son is given. And the word given is a word that follows us right through the whole of the the story of our salvation, that it is about God's gift. When Jesus is in the manger, a son is given. And it's not Isaiah who gives the son, It's not David, it's not Abraham. A son is given by God. This is the gift of God in the child born of the Virgin Mary. A son is given. The very gift of God. Will we take a leap into the New Testament and we read these famous words of John in chapter 3 at verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A son is given. Here is the the highlight of, of this child that is born, that he's here as the gift of God, and that God is giving not just any son, but God giving his own son par excellence. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
a son is given. And we go to, to the manger and, and we, we see the, the, the frail child in the arms and the breast of his mother. And we think of his, of his humanness and we think of his fragility. But we also come into the fragility of his infant humanness. And we come to meet the Son of God. The beauty of the entrance of the light into the darkness. The coming of the Son of God. And what a, a great joy it is for ourselves to, to think today of, of the giving of a Son by God. His only beloved Son. God said to Abraham. Go to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice your son Isaac, your only one, whom you love. And the God who is speaking in that way to Abraham is the God who has at the back of his own mind the very thing that he's going to do himself. He's going to give a son and he's going to give a son for the lost world. And the entrance we have of a son is in the manger at Bethlehem. And when we continue to think of, of his entrance into the world, where we have the, the striking marvel that the Son of God is on the, on the throne of the universe, who is the creator God, that he comes to bear a burden. And that on his birth into the manger in Bethlehem, he has on his shoulders the massive burden of ruling and governing this world. He is coming into the world and he is the one, the government will be upon his shoulder. He is going to bear the kingdom of God on his own shoulders. And the marvel of what God is going to do is such that he is not going to put in place somebody who is going to be strikingly powerful in, in, in his appearance and in his presence but a humble child to bear the burden of governing this people and so that instead of, of this people as we read earlier instead of them having the burden of the oppressor on their shoulder crushing them under the enmity of the oppressor because of the rebellion against God. Instead of that, he is taking the burden of oppression away and taking to himself the burden of governing and ruling over them. The government will be on his shoulder. And Isaiah goes on in verse number 7 to, to expand on that. But today, for our purposes, we think of this marvellous entrance that brings about the dawning of the day, the child that comes from among the people, that is also the Son of God, and that has come to do what Aeas failed so miserably to do, and even the best of kings didn't do anything near to what God required of them. But this child, he will do it. The entrance. The child 
that is born to be king more than any other child. The entrance. Secondly, we want to think of the endowment. What makes this person special? He is the son of God. How is he able to do what God has sent him to do because he is prepared, he is endowed by God in a particular way. And when we go on to the rest of the verse, we see that there are four names given to this marvellous Son, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And when we come to think of this child's endowment, we are thinking of the first two of these names, Wonderful Counselor, and mighty God. He comes to bear the garment upon his shoulder and he is endowed, first of all, with the qualifications that enable him to succeed. And that's a great beginning for any work. Send a person to do something and don't give him any of the equipment that needs to accomplish that. Then it's doomed to fail. But send somebody and equip them with everything that they have need of to accomplish that task. Then you can expect success. You can expect results. And so here is the son. Here is a wonderful counselor. And the counselor at one level he is is somebody who gives advice and who gives counsel. He is also somebody who, who prepares plans. Somebody who who is equipped in that way with a particular mind that that enables them to to look in a situation, to work out a plan, to address that situation in order to reverse that and to bring it to be something that it ought to be in the bigger picture here, of course, of the kingdom of God. There is the need of the counsellor. And so the counsellor has to have, first of all, the capacity to understand and assess your situation and mine, the situation of the world, and then have the capacity to put together a policy and a strategy in order to address that. And that's what we have here with this counsellor. We go on to to, to to chapter number 11, and we see the way in which, in verse number 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might. He is a counsellor who has wisdom. And the counsellor who has wisdom is spoken of by the same Isaiah in chapter 52 at verse 13, that my servant will act wisely. In other words, he will be successful. And we look at the the child in the manger who is the son of God and he is given that wisdom through which he is able in his growing up and in his mature adulthood in his service to the God who has sent him able at every step of the way to understand, to know the truth, to apply the truth and to do it in every kind of situation. And in addressing the people, no one ever spoke like this man. 
Who is this? Is he not the son of Joseph? He is a wonderful counsellor. He is a counsellor par excellence. There is no counsellor like him. The wonderful counsellor in the Old Testament is, is the God of the Exodus. And in chapter 15, Moses sings the song of the Exodus. The God who is glorious in holiness, doing wonders. What wonderful thing. What was, humanly speaking, impossible. Rescuing Israel from the land of Egypt. Dividing the sea. Letting his people pass in safety. Closing the sea back down, drowning their enemies. Wonderful counsellor. Who would have thought of such a thing? And this son of God who is in the manger at Bethlehem. Is such a wonderful counsellor. He is going to do the unthinkable thing. The unimaginable thing. What we thought he would never do. And from the moment that he steps out of Bethlehem and, and begins on his journey through this world in accordance with the purposes of God, that's what we see happening. He performs miracles. He speaks the word and he calms the storm. He proves himself to be that wonderful counsellor who is successful in every way and who comes at last to give himself in his great achievement on the cross that is displayed in the resurrection. Wonderful counsellor. He does the impossible thing, the unimaginable thing, the thing that's way beyond what we can ever begin to think. And as we think of his entrance, and as we come to, to think especially on Christmas Day of, of, the, of the birth of the Son of God into the world. Let's marvel at the way in which he was endowed with such wisdom. That gave Paul to say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, endowed in every way to be successful. And they marveled at him as he grew up as a boy in the temple, every step that he took, they wondered at this wonderful counsellor and the way in which he spoke to, to adults who are firmly established in the truth. Wonderful counsellor. But along with that, and what makes him endowed 100% for the work in which he is engaged, he is also the mighty God. He is the God whose name is El that speaks of all that God is and, and the, the basic root name for, for God. He is God through and through. The infant on his mother's breast is God through and through. And not just God through and through, he is the mighty God. And when I look for an explanation of what the mighty God means in the Old Testament, the word that comes up time after time is the warrior and the conqueror, the one who goes out into battle and he's always successful. And this 
child in the manger, is endowed now as the one who is the, the mighty God and who is in this world to, to conquer, to overcome every force against God, every force against the people of God, to overcome the enmity that there is in the world from the very beginning in Genesis 3. He is the conqueror. He will go and he will capture the strong man as he speaks in the Gospel of Matthew. He will cast him out. He will go to the cross and he will cast out the prince of this world. He is the mighty God, the, the anointed conqueror of God, who is God himself. And let's not for, for forget the mighty God and the mighty conqueror who is God. Let's not forget him in two places. Let's not forget that in the manger, that's who he is it's the mighty God conquering even in his childhood overcoming the forces of evil standing firm let's not forget him in all of his life conquering evil and conquering darkness and shining in the darkness and let's not forget him going to the cross at Calvary and let's not forget that he goes there as the conqueror and not the defeated one. And at the same time, let's not forget that in our everyday lives, he is the anointed conqueror. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And when we begin to feel defeated, when we lose sight of the fact that the anointed conqueror is on our side, then let's draw back. Let's ensure that the blackout curtains are open. Let's ensure that the windows are clear. Let's ensure that we are always lighting the wonderful counsellor and the mighty God. Let's always ensure that his victory is always what we experience in the midst of every threat to our defeat and to our loss. The endowment the wonderful counsellor and the mighty God, that God would show himself to this world in the smallness and in the beginning of infancy and in the development of the child throughout the whole of his life until he leaves this world. The entrance the endowment, and finally, the environment. There has to be such a great change. We look at our world today and how much we would long for a brand new environment, how much the world needs that. That's what the coming of the sun promises and secures. He is the everlasting Father, he is the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. We are fathers in this world, says Jesus, who cared for us. God himself is brought before us as, as Father. But in this instance, it's not God the Father who is spoken of 
as everlasting Father. It is the Son who is in the manger, the infant of Mary. He is the everlasting Father. And how are we going to bring these two ideas together, that, that the Son who is, who is going to have the garment on his shoulder, how is he going to be Father if God is our Father? Only when we understand that in the Old Testament, the king was the father of the people, as he was the shepherd of the people, as he was the ruler of the people. And the father is, is the one who cares. The father is the one who loves. If the king is the king that he should be, as sent by God, then he's a father to his people. And when the Bible speaks of, of God being a father to the fatherless and the protector of widows, when the Bible speaks of such pity as a father has to his children, dear, here is the characteristic of, of, of this son of God, this, this king, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God. He is the one who cares supremely for his people. I hear him looking at, at the great crowds, crowds following him. And what is his response? He was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had no father to care for them. They had no king to be over them, to give them that fatherly care that they had so much need of. But this king will be different. The same Jesus that speak in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark in these terms is the one who will be and who is now the everlasting Father. Not a momentary one, not a, a, a flash in the pan of providence, not that kind of Father, but one whose care is constant. And the one who creates that environment of, of gathering the lost sheep, of going to find the injured sheep, of binding up their wounds and of bringing them to places where they can graze and where they can be satisfied, where they can, can lie down and rest. When I think everlasting Father, I think of the psalm that we're going to sing at the end of ourselves, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in pastures green. He cares. He looks after. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. He is an everlasting Father. And when I go through life and I come to times and places when I may feel that nobody cares and not, nobody has any concern in my isolation and at times in life, then I keep clarity between myself and, and the Lord Jesus. And I hear his word saying to me, I am your everlasting father. Don't ever think that nobody cares because my care is constant. It will never come to an end. He changes the environment. Ahaz 
was a hopeless king. And because he was so hopeless and so faithless, the people were roaming around under the oppression of one enemy after the other. They needed to hear that this person was different. And that's what he would be for them, and he is for us. He is the everlasting Father who creates that environment of care and he is also the Prince of Peace who secures the paradise of God for those who trust in him. The Prince of Peace. The one who is the leader who goes before. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 that God and, and purposing to bring many sons to glory, made the captain of their salvation, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. The prince, the captain, the leader, the one who goes before his people, he is the prince of peace. The peace that certainly speaks of the end of Enmity. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and, and your seed. But the seed of the woman who will crush, who will bruise the, the serpent's head, he will establish peace, an end to all hostility. The stillness that the finished work of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, brings about. He will, says Paul, or he made, he made peace through the blood of the cross. The peace of God which passes all understanding. And let's always ensure that we don't limit the peace. The peace and of course, the Bible says we, we, are, we have, are justified by faith and we have peace with God. Our sins are forgiven. We have peace with God. Our marvelous standing and status. But the peace that the Prince of Peace establishes is more than that. It's what brings about a transformation in our experience and ultimately a transformation in the whole world so that what we have as the, the horizon of the work of the Prince of Peace is the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no enmity anymore. Where, says Isaiah, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, where there is the whole complete sense of harmony and of wholeness and of well-being that is nothing less than the paradise of God, what God has prepared for his people. And when I read in Revelation chapter 7 that in that marvelous place to which we are going with the people of God, I see that there this everlasting Father is the Prince of Peace who shepherds his people. And to lead them into fountains of living water. 
And God the Father wipes all tears away from their eyes. That's the environment that this Prince of Peace secures. And today that's our great hope in the Gospel. The birth of the Son of God, of the Lord Jesus, is not something we enjoy once a year. It's at the very centre of our faith. And we rejoice in his birth, we rejoice in his life, in his death and in his resurrection. And we look forward. Behold, he is coming. This great son to welcome us and we will welcome him, him. And then we shall be forevermore with the Lord. May God help us to celebrate truly with the birth of a son into this world really means and to know the joy in our hearts that comes from believing in the name of a son as our see. And the goblin's words, let us pray. Most gracious God, we rejoice in you and in your good gift. We are thankful that you have given to us the gift that we cannot fully describe and that your word itself describes as the unspeakable gift. And we rejoice in all that the Lord Jesus is all that he is for our salvation. Help us to have faith. Help us to lean upon him. Help us to know your grace and strength through him day by day. And bless your word to us as we continue in your presence, we ask. For we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. <coughs> our glory psalm is at Psalm number 23, and we'll sing the whole of the psalm together. Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I not want. He makes me down to lie. The Lord's my shepherd, I Oh, yeah. 
Stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>